Hello and welcome to this fourth and final session in the series called Beyond Survival. Um, I thought I'd take just a minute before wrapping these things up to review kind of where we've come from and set a context for where we're going to end up. Um, every ending point for me always seems like a launching point <laughs> into whatever's coming next. So um, I feel like we're in a bit of a, a, a loop, but it's the kind of loop that just keeps you moving forward if that makes any sense. Um, so where we started was uh, defining survival. And I think the critical thing for me thinking back on talking about this is it's so tempting to want to think of survival as such an extreme state. Um, and I'm encouraging us all to look at the survival tendencies that we all have all the time, um, not just in our extreme days or our extreme seasons, um, but the presence of the inclination to survive and how it is brought to the surface when things get extreme and really difficult, but it's really always there. The roots of it uh, were there before the extreme season showed up. The problem is not the extreme season or the situations or the circumstances. Um, what What is seeming like a problem has really just always been there. And the the problem that we're facing, the situation that has made things so extreme or our life seems so difficult, um, all it has done is brought to the surface what was already there. Um, then in the second session, um, we took some time to explore some of the unique uh, personal and individualized ways that survival expresses itself. And we all have different things we cling to because we're all different people. Um, we were brought into the world with different values and different desires. And then we were raised uh, in different environments by different types of people, and we've all had different experiences, and we've responded to those experiences differently. And so we've all learned in our own unique way how to survive. And those survival methods are totally germane to us. They are, they seem like the most normal thing ever. We wouldn't even, many of them, think twice. Um, and so exploring who we are, what matters to us, and looking at our behaviors in that context in a non-judgmental way, we can definitely find patterns in our life, things we tend to go to, um, things we tend to reach for when life gets stressful or anxious or um, frustrating or scary, um, whatever things put us into that mode, we tend to go to the similar things. And while we might say um, some of those behaviors are inherently more destructive than others to ourselves or to others. Again, we don't have to judge or draw a line between saying what's okay for us to do and what's not okay for us to do. What we're interested in is what's the root? Why am I drawn to this? Why am I doing this? And what is it doing to me long-term? Is it keeping me in this mentality of survival? Um, is it just yet another way that I'm learning to take care of myself so that I don't have to trust God or surrender to God? Um, or um, is there a way that I, you know, can let this go and still be okay? And life, in my opinion, is a process of discovering these things and in taking small steps in trusting God as we begin to let go. Um, and it doesn't always mean stopping doing the thing. It might just mean doing it in a different way. Um the third session then was about the tools that we have for uh, making our way out of survival. 
And they are the counterintuitive tools of sacrifice or surrender or um, laying down our self-will, however you want to describe that. It is essentially the prayer of Jesus in the garden, not what I want, but what you want. And so that comes with an immediate recognition that what I want is one thing. I, I want something and I want it and I can't pretend that I don't want it. Um, but I can choose to not want what I currently want. And that itself is an act of will. Um, it is not an unhealthy act of will. It's not forcing anything, but it's allowing our will to play the central role that it plays in our lives, which is to choose who we want to be, um, particularly to surrender our will to God's will. Um, there cannot be uh, two kings in a kingdom, if you want to put it in the kingdom terminology. Either God is king or I am king. And so I'm constantly confronted with discovering my own kingdom. And the tool, the gift that I am given is, again, this counterintuitive idea that I am actually learning to not be the king of my own kingdom. And that if I will choose that path and trust the one who is the king, um, that I will discover all sorts of benefits and blessings that come along with that. Um, and those might not be like what I expect, but they are described, among other things, in terms of love, joy, peace, and hope. Um, and so we have to explore what those are. And today, what I'd like to do is just spend a little bit of time talking about how we gain these new experiences in the kingdom, how we can develop our sense of trusting that it really is better um, to trust God than to trust myself. Um, that is a journey. That in itself, you could say, is the journey of faith. It's the journey of trusting God at every level of my soul and my being and handing myself over to God no matter what. So I think I'll start with by saying that the antidote to survival is not simply saying no to trusting ourselves, but that it has to be combined with a full-hearted yes to trusting God. The choice to trust is always, you know, it's a choice. Um, but at some point, it can become just a natural thing that happens because of so much experience that says, I don't even have to think about this anymore. This is just the, the way that I live. Um, you certainly don't have to require, uh, don't have to manufacture any feelings. Um, but as we talked about in the last session, surrendering our self-trust for God's God-trust um, will have a whole bunch of feelings accompanying it. And that is really what we're laying down. Um, a couple things about this. An easy mistake to make when we are confronted with or realizing that we have these deep needs and desires that we tend to go to to take care of ourselves. Um, one mistake that we tend to make is we just want to maybe pretend like it's not there, like we're not having that desire. Um, so I feel the desire. I'm aware of it. I want to go to this thing or run to this thing. And now I'm aware that it's a survival technique that I'm using and it's a way that I'm sort of avoiding the conversation with God. Um, <clears throat> it would be tempting to think I could just kind of turn away and pretend like it's not there. So for example, if I pretend that I don't want to eat the cookie, um, the deficit within me, the thing that wants to eat the cookie is a real thing and it's not going anywhere, right? Uh, it's going to find expression. It, it is making itself known, and it needs to find some kind of fulfillment. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, 
you know, if I wanted to eat something eat like the cookie, it's like, well, I was wanting sweets, but I denied myself. So now I'm just plain angry. <laughs> um, that obviously is not the goal. It's not a solution. So instead, we're talking about now learning to recognize and engage in how God actually wants to nourish and satisfy the real need. Okay? So I can't just say no. I have to say yes to something. So another example. Let's say that I have learned to escape into fantasy. Uh, TV, movies, books, whatever. It's just my way of kind of jumping into an alternate reality um, that feels great. Um, As a survival method, I can do that. And of course, if God highlights this to me and I see that I'm now using this to avoid what's going on inside of me rather than engage in the process and handing over and figuring out what I need to practice trusting God with and to to figure out what I need to receive from God, love, joy, hope, peace, whatever. Um, If I choose to turn off that screen or put down the book and say, okay, I'm going to intentionally make space to engage and converse with God, it is not going to feel the same as watching that show or reading that book. So I can't go into that moment expecting that I'm going to have the exact same kind of experience. It is a qualitatively different kind of thing. So similarly, if my go-to survival mode happens to be workaholism, and I would much rather uh, get a bunch of work done on a Saturday and um, kind of isolate in my office or whatever, um, going and engaging with God intentionally and on my own, it's not going to feel the same as getting a whole ton of work done on a Saturday. It's just not going to feel that way. I cannot expect it to feel the same because they are meeting two, uh, they are actually accomplishing two different things. So this different experience um, by which God satisfies us is not a hit you in the face kind of experience. So this is where we run into language, especially with the older writers, about sensual things being negative. Now, obviously, God gave us our bodies and our senses, and um, the world is meant to be a delight to our senses, and we're meant to be a delight to each other, and all these good things. That's great. They just become problems when we depend on them. Um, So we're talking about our sensual, as in, um, you know, see, taste, hear, touch, smell, um, desires, satisfying ourselves via our physical senses is one kind of satisfaction, and it, and it meets a certain kind of desire, but it doesn't touch the deeper soul desire that God is wanting to meet. So we have to get used to recognizing that there are things when we're interacting with God, there are shifts and things that are happening on a deep heart level that we often don't even know how to recognize or describe. We know that um, dopamine plays a real role in people's pleasure, Um, but this is not a mere dopamine hit in the same way that scrolling through Instagram would be. Um, This is more of a deep soul shift that you might not always be able to quite put your finger on. Um, For instance, you might finish a time of of, uh, quiet prayer or journaling or meditation on a scripture And you might not be able to say what exactly feels different, and you might even still feel kind of unsettled. Um, But something is different. 
And if you pay attention to it and recognize it, it, it might be very subtle, but it's there. Maybe it's as simple as some edge that was there is now gone. Or maybe some way you felt squishy or empty or just kind of um, unstable is gone and now you just feel a bit more solid as you begin your day. Um, like you have footing where you didn't have footing before. Or maybe it's just as simple as now that you're actually anticipating some good things for your day where before you could only anticipate bad. Um, the, the verse from Isaiah 30 comes to mind when I think about this, which is Israel is looking to Egypt for help from its enemies. And God is saying through the prophet that uh, your salvation is in repentance and rest and in quietness and trust. Those are some of the words that are used in that chapter. Repentance and rest, quietness and trust. And that is, quote, salvation for them. That's where salvation is. Now, you might obviously agree that repentance and rest and quietness and trust are quite a different experience than seeing an entire army coming to your aid. Very, very different. So, I wanted to highlight that difference because if we go in expecting that um, God is going to hit our senses the same way that all of our various sensual satisfactions do, we're going to be disappointed. Next, I'd like to share two analogies that have really hit home for me, and they're uh, ones that I've held on to for the last 15 or so years. The first is that we are tempted to see all of these experiences, anytime we say spend time in prayer or contemplating um, our, our connection and our relationship with God, we tend to see these as very kind of like one and done type of moments. It's like that happened and now I'm moving on with my day. Um, but I really appreciate the image of scales um, where you have a set of scales and there's a balance. And the weight of our balance is heavily on the side of trusting ourselves and not knowing how to experience relationship with God and how God really does meet those deep needs in our souls. But every time that we do experience and recognize and respond to that movement of God within us and we pay attention to it and we, it, it be, uh, we, uh, we sort of develop a new little bit of trust in what that is, Sorry, that took me a moment to find the words there. It's like we took one weight from one side of the scales and we transferred it to the other, and the scales shifted a little bit. And as we do that, this happens more and more, and it gets to the point where we're actually more weighted on the side of experience in God. Um, so we can feel like each of those small encounters or those small victories that we have, those times when we feel like, okay, I, I see what's going on here. It's only maybe a drop in the ocean of our overwhelming desire just to take care of ourselves rather than choosing this vulnerable and risky path of trusting God. But every time we do it, we are gaining something. And that, and that gain doesn't go away. It doesn't vanish. This is actually the process that we need to build the trust. Um, and trust, which is just another word for faith in this sense, builds on itself. That's how faith grows. You use what faith you have, you act on what faith you have, and it grows over time. I was thinking about this dynamic the other day, about how strange it is that we can actually acquire new skills by <clears throat> doing things that we can do and becoming proficient at what we can and slowly 
it builds on itself. Um, <clears throat> so like when I'm uh, learning to play piano or something, like I can actually learn to do something that I currently cannot do simply by doing the things that I can do. Uh, and the more that I do what I can do and become proficient at it, sort of my proficiency expands and sort of these new um, new frontiers sort of open to me and I now I can do something new. I couldn't do that before, but now I can. Like that itself is such a strange nature of, uh, or part of the nature of life. And <clears throat> I think life with God and faith is really no different in some ways. Um, this is one reason why building in life habits or what sometimes is called a rule of life and sticking to those habits, those things that we can do, is extremely important. Uh, we're so um, aware of all the things we can't do all the time. Um, and we're constantly told about all the things we should be doing, but that might feel to us like, gosh, that seems so far away. Um, this, to me, is an encouragement, what we're talking about right now, is an encouragement that everything that we are being asked to do right now is, in many senses, totally within us to do, and that that is all that we are being asked to do. And if we are, again, faithful to those things, um, that life will build from there, that new frontiers will open to us. Um, the other image I want to share, or analogy, I should say, is the analogy of building or making new wheel ruts in a well, well-worn road. Um, we have all developed certain mental ruts, and they are physically wired into our brain and our neural pathways, ways of responding, um, <clears throat> ways of hearing and receiving information. And those are well-worn, they're old, they're familiar, they're comfortable. Um, and we know, especially, we know the paths that will bring us immediate satisfaction and comfort. Um, <clears throat> so, in order to make new ruts of habit and behavior, it takes this kind of consistent practice. But the new ways, as they become more and more familiar, the old ways simultaneously become less and less familiar. So again, back to this idea, we're not saying no to things only. We're actually saying no to something so that we can say yes to something else. Um, <clears throat> and finally, uh, an image that recently has come to really mean a lot to me. Um, and this, to me, really sums up this whole picture of survival. Uh, is, let's go ahead and imagine survival like struggling to keep your head above water. So picture, picture uh, yourself or a person who is literally struggling to keep their heads above water. Maybe, maybe there's a few vines or branches hanging down and they're clinging to them, um, but there's just enough to barely hold on and they're just barely enough to keep your head above water. I would like to suggest that what if the core of this, the lie is that it is our job to keep struggling to hang on, to keep our heads above water. Um, or another way to say it is that if I let go of these things that I think are keeping me a bit, uh, my head above water, that I won't be okay. I couldn't possibly be okay because then I'll have nothing to hang on to and I'll sink. So another way to see it then is, well, what if me keeping my head above water is the mistake? What if 
God is the water. (laughs) What if me trying to keep my head above water is simply just me trying to live without God? Um, What should I do then? Well, I should probably let go. Um, But of course, if I let go, I will sink into the vast abyss that is the greatness and the mystery and the all-encompassing presence of God, and I will have to fully surrender to it. What might I find there? Um, I think that what we will find is that we are actually made to live in water, (laughs) in this analogy. Um, I would describe life underwater in this sense as a life of constant surrender. Constant surrender is what allows you to exist and to, and to live and to breathe and to thrive underwater. Um, I think when we look at Jesus and his passion, the process of surrendering in Gethsemane and then going through the actual uh, action of being handed over, um, you know, being confronted in, the, in front of the council of Jewish elders and being, you know, called names and spat upon and lied about and not defending himself and then being handed over to the governing authorities and being, you know, beat and mocked and then eventually being forced to carry his own cross up and to allow himself to be nailed to a cross, when the whole time he could have just said, enough, I'm done with this. So that whole picture is Jesus breathing underwater. He's certainly underwater because, I mean, who would not call that being underwater? Like that is about as underwater as you can get. And yet, um, he, he was able to not just endure it, which he did endure, but even to the very end was able to remain compassionate, saying things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Um, so somehow he endured but not just by gritting his teeth, but he endured with love and joy and hope and peace. Um, recently, I've been reading about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his and one of his biographies, and um, <clears throat> the comments about him. Bonhoeffer wrote a lot about this kind of surrender, and the comments about him by his jailers or the other men that were with him in prison, and either even people that were with him when he was executed. They would say, I have never seen anyone so completely at peace and surrendered to the will of God. So, if survival is ultimately a game of scarcity, it's focused on, I have only this little that's keeping my head above water. I've just got enough. What it leads to then is this unhealthy um, competition between us where there's always winners and losers. Um, It leads to our pride, either internally, look at what I can do for myself, or our selfishness, um, I'm sorry I don't have time for you, I'm busy taking care of myself. But bottom line is, it it is the sort of the source or the, um, um, that, um, the soil from which all of the opposite of life in the kingdom grows. It's, it's where all the weeds that we end up dealing with and chasing after and all the stuff that we end up um, having to sort of find a way to deal with, that's where it all comes from. And so 
my hope in offering these conversations and in creating communities where we can work through these things and think through these things and support each other is that we can stop putting out fires and start dealing with where the fire is coming from. And to me, survival is a way of describing where this, where this fire is coming from. It is this belief, this lie, that I need to keep my head above water and that these things, whatever they are, are what keep me there. Um, so let's wrap up by saying, well, what could I gain? If I take this path of surrendering, if I let go of these things, and instead of holding on to them and, and, and um, putting my confidence in them, if I surrender to the abyss and the underwater world that God may be inviting me to, um, <clears throat> what will I gain? There are these two great parables that Jesus talks about. One is the parable of the hidden treasure where a man learns of a, of a treasure that's buried, hidden in a field, and so the man goes and sells everything he has, and he buys the field so we can have that treasure. And then another of a pearl that someone sees that is what's called the pearl of great price. And it's such a precious pearl, he's never seen anything like it, that he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that one pearl. So my question is, do you see the kingdom of heaven, what God is offering you and the life that is available to you for what it is? Is it not just maybe a future experience you're hoping for after you die, but something that you can actually purchase, in a sense, today? Um, is it something that you are convinced is worth everything you have and more? If not, I think it would be a worthwhile, before embarking on any kind of commitments or any kind of, you know, new... Uh, ventures to really take that first step of establishing what it is that you're aiming for and what it is that is available to you. If that is a big question mark and you don't really know why you would be, I mean, why would you ask anyone to let go of, I think I talked about this in the first session, why would you ask anyone to stop surviving if you didn't have something that was convincing, that actually convinced them that they didn't need to survive anymore? That would be lunacy. Um, <clears throat> so what I'm, what I think I'm saying is, um, there is a pearl of great price. There is a treasure in the field to be had. It is worth more than everything that you or I have in our lives combined, and more. Um, and the value of this is hidden. It's hidden in a field. <laughs> um, and God is happy to show it to or reveal it to those who ask and seek and search with their whole heart, um, but it will also remain hidden if we allow it to. Um, but if we search it out in the teachings of Jesus, and if we search it out in the teachings and the lives of the people who have discovered this and found it to be truly greater than anything else, then we will have a reason when the rubber hits the road of deciding, how am I going to spend my time this morning or this evening? Or what am I going to plan for when I want to turn to that thing or avoid this situation and isolate or whatever it may be, whatever your survival methods may be? Um, 
what is really going to make the difference? It's going to be the captivating vision you have of the good that this will do, of what, of what the benefit really is. But once you have that vision, you can make a plan. And the plan is uh, basically the opposite of the survival habit that we have all, the habits that we've all created without even trying. Um, we are actually making a plan for building habits for living in the kingdom of God and experiencing what it's like to have God establish love and peace and joy and hope in our souls. So what are those habits for? Well, they're really for two things. The first is therefore increasing our awareness or our sensitivity of God's movement in our lives, in our souls. So it's not just that we're not paying attention, but it's also that everything else in our life is just so stinking loud. Even just in our minds, there are so many voices and so many competing um, agendas. So God's influence and God's shifts in our soul, while they can be at times cataclysmic, and we may have times we can look back and say, wow, God totally rocked my life, usually they are not. Usually God's voice is not an impositional voice. It's not imposing. Usually it's more of a still small voice. Just like our goal in any relationship with people that we know well is not to have to scream at each other to get their attention. Sometimes it's the most wonderful thing just to be able to look or smile or wink at someone and you know exactly what each other's thinking. We have to be willing to recalibrate our attention to God on that level where if God just wants to wink at us or smile at us or, you know, just that little slightest nudge of a breeze in our soul from the Spirit and we're sensitive to it. So that's the first thing. These habits that we might establish on a daily basis become sensitizing habits to us. Um, And then the other is, uh, besides uh, increasing our sensitivity or our awareness, we are trying to increase uh, the normalized, habituated response. So what I'm talking about is that it just becomes a basic and normal thing when I recognize God moving me, shifting me, adjusting me, hinting to me, whatever. It just becomes the most normal thing in the world for me to first recognize it and second, to respond <clears throat> accordingly. Um, and it reminds me of the parable of the the, the good soil. So there's the, the sower and he's sowing the seeds and there's the different types of soil. But the final soil is a good soil that it says receives and it responds by producing fruit. Um, to me, that's our heart. That is our good will that desires to hear God and desires to respond. So every time I surrender the fulfilling of my own needs in my own way, what I'm doing is I'm retraining myself to be sensitive to what God has put in me or is putting in me and to respond to that. So every time I engage in sort of the saying no, It's like, okay, I'm saying no to this and I'm turning to God. That's great. And I'm trying to receive something from God. But I'm also engaging and acting in trust as a practical way of retraining myself. So um, there are, once I was um, told about, to think of it in three ways. Like if I'm, you know, edging towards survival and I'm heading that way, One great rubric just to kind of run through in your head is just to say three things. One, is there anything that I need to forgive? Anyone that I need to forgive? Sometimes that could be I need to forgive God. (laughs) Sometimes I need to forgive myself. Usually I need to forgive other people. 
Um, secondly, is there something I just need to hand over, like to intentionally just entrust to God? I'm just not going to take control of that, or I'm not going to worry about that. Instead, I'm going to actively now pray, and I'm going to verbally and consciously give this thing to God, however many times I need to do it. So forgiveness, trust, and then lastly, do I just need to serve somebody? Do I just need to get outside of my own head, get outside of my own little bubble, and go do something for someone else, not because they're doing anything for me, but just because they're, they're valuable and I need to engage in serving other people? Now, there are innumerable ways we can practice responding to God. I think those three are super helpful. Um, the response might be just an internal response, like just, okay, I'm just going to take a moment and be thankful here and thank God uh, consciously and in, intentionally. Or I'm going to go ahead and get active. I'm going to serve somebody, you know. <clears throat> but I would say the easiest and most essential way that we practice this awareness and response to God is through prayer. Um, it's through devoting times of focused quiet so that we can pay attention, so that we can listen for those soft whisperings of God, and then we can actively take hold of them and make them our own. Um, and then, as we make them our own, we reply. Prayer is a conversation. We speak back, either using forms developed by people over the centuries of Christianity, um, or simply by speaking out of our own hearts whatever is there. So, so many spiritual masters, so many saints and people who have been recognized as holy people have emphasized the importance of spending time every day attuning ourselves to the voice of God and practicing this kind of interactive relationship. And most of them would also assume that we're, we're doing it in the morning and in the evening. So I'd like to say briefly, what is the importance of the daily practice? And I'll, I'll get at it just with a simple question. Considering the flow of life, considering how much in terms of a, um, a current of life, of culture, of whatever, is flowing against you and all around you, and it's flowing in the direction of take care of yourself, um, don't bother trusting God, <laughs> um, uh, trust in what you can see, not what you can't see, I would like to ask you, in that context, what kind of time investment do you think would realistically make a substantial difference to you? What would actually make a substantial difference in terms of what you are willing to trust in and what becomes the most natural and normal thing for you to trust in? I would suggest that daily becomes, at that point, sort of a minimum investment. Um, in the same way that I would say if you want to learn a language and you're not going to be willing to spend time daily working on it, I don't think you're going to get very far. And the same thing that I would tell to my piano students, if you don't make at least a little time every day to sit down and work on these fundamentals, you're just going to have a really tough time. Now, it starts small. It might start with uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. Uh, but what will happen is, as that becomes doable, and as that becomes comfortable, you'll realize that your desire for more will grow. And it might even scare you, because you're like, I don't have more time. Or if I'm going to spend, you know, if I'm going to spend more time doing this, I'm going to need to say no to these other things. That is essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about learning to live underwater. 
underwater, there's no more up or down. Um, <clears throat> it's all God. And <clears throat> God immerses us and we immerse ourselves in God more and more as we take these steps. So what kind of steps? Well, that I mean, it starts so practically. It starts with a time and a place. A place, a time and a place become holy. It becomes a place for you and God to meet. Um, and you might find all sorts of ways to make that helpful. You might find a candle helpful. You might find a certain smells helpful. Um, you might find a cup of coffee helpful. You might find um, <clears throat> a certain chair to be helpful. Uh, certainly certain times are more helpful than others, times when you can be focused and not distracted. But this becomes a very holy thing about how you spend your time with God, holy in the sense of um, set apart for a very specific purpose. And what would you do in those times? I would like to make sort of three recommendations. The first is that we should make time pretty consistently to be inspired. Um, we need teachers, we need guides, we need people who inspire us and motivate us and show us a road that we have not traveled. And so finding someone who motivates you and inspires you to continue, continue, to continue your pursuit of God is essential. Thankfully, we have a backlog of centuries and millennia of people who have been on this journey. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not talking about just in the Bible. I'm talking about other, other readings and writings and even contemporary ones. Um, now, a lot of people will recommend make sure you don't just read contemporary, but also you read some of the older, older folks as well. And I have a list, and I'll be providing that list um, of some recommendations. But the point is, find at least someone, anyone you can listen to, either via recording or that you can be reading, and just read a little bit, not a lot, um, just a little bit, just as a way of sort of um, letting them continue to guide you and inspire you on this path that so, so many have made before us. Secondly, I think a part of this daily um, really... And careful not to make these into laws. I'm I'm making recommendations, not laws here. Um, but that scripture should probably be a fundamental part of that. Um, and I would recommend either following a form like Electio Divina, and I have a great little book that I found this year that has been so incredibly helpful to me in terms of rethinking and learning the fundamentals of how to connect with God through scripture. And that's a book by Guigo II called A Ladder for Monks. Or even something as simple as an app that I also found in the last year and a half or so called Pray As You Go. And there are lots of others, um, plenty of websites as well, where people just lead you in scripture meditation. Um, and it's a great way to engage the scripture, especially for those of us who have come up, come out of hangups with reading the Bible. Um, <clears throat> so making a small amount of scripture, and I would kind of preface that by saying, I think the gospels should probably always be the focus, but I think reading Psalms regularly is, has shown historically to be super helpful and it's proving to be helpful for me. And then adding in some of the letters of the New Testament and the Old Testament books is also helpful. Um, but I would recommend starting with very small amounts, <laughs> especially if you've got a, a history there that is uh, difficult or has been damaging. 
So inspiration, I think, is critical. Scripture, I think, is critical. And then some way of engaging in prayer. Um, <clears throat> and this is just direct conversation with God. I think the Lord's Prayer is the greatest prayer ever given to humans. I think it encapsulates all of Jesus' fundamental teachings about the kingdom of God and that we can use each of the statements in that prayer if we learn what they represent. We can use them as little points of meditation and conversation between us and God to deal with sort of all the fundamental things. But there's also lots of famous prayers by, you know, these, these holy people and saints that have been written and that people have used for centuries and centuries as <clears throat> uh, little focused forms of prayer that allow us to really focus in on some specific ideas. And then, of course, there's just mental prayer. In other words, whatever comes to mind, whatever's in your heart or spirit that just needs to come out or, or converse with God in a more spontaneous way. Um, but I think these three things kind of form a foundation of experience that then you can learn uh, learn through, that you can trust. Um, so that when we do these things, when life is going well, um, as life gets difficult and things would tend in a more extreme direction and we would tend to maybe abandon what seems like these small and insignificant acts for what seems like the more reliable ways of survival, that we would actually have built up a, um, a whole backlog, a whole investment, a whole bank account full of experience of what it's like to be with God. Um, and that that becomes eventually more real to us than anything else. I'm attaching um, a practice with this recording to help kind of sift through some of these ideas. And these questions are not, are not easy or brief questions. They're more like take a question a day and maybe think about it. Um, and I'm looking forward to meeting and discussing these things together. So I hope you've enjoyed these conversations. I've enjoyed writing them and recording them. I, and I pray they've been helpful. And um, we will continue on from here. So God bless and thanks for hanging in there.